previously in Episode 17, Part 1. On June 2, 2010, the UK experienced one of the worst gun massacres in history. Within an eight-hour period, a 52-year-old taxi driver by the name of Derek Bird executed a 25-mile rampage of mass murder throughout the county, indiscriminately shooting at anyone that crossed his path. Innocent people going about their daily lives. He also shot colleagues, acquaintances, and even his own twin brother. What had caused Derek Bird to snap that fateful day? A day that would leave the people who thought they knew him mystified and shocked beyond belief. Join me now as we take a look back further into the history of Derek Bird and the events leading up to that day in UK history that would leave a community devastated and an entire country reeling for answers. Derek Bird was one of three sons born to Mary and Joseph Bird, a respectable couple who lived in the Arendale Bridge District of Cumbria. Brian Bird was the eldest born in 1952. Five years later, Derek and his twin brother David were born. The boys attended school locally. One of the teachers hadn't recalled either of them behaving badly. Derek would occasionally get into mischief, just like any other kid. But the thing she recalled the most was how different the boys were. She described the boys as different as chalk and cheese. She described Derek as an introvert, a quiet lad. David, on the other hand, was outgoing and gregarious. Bird's mother, Mary, recalled Derek keeping his troubles to himself growing up. He didn't argue with anyone and never lost his temper. The boys left school at 16 for a mechanic's apprenticeship at a local garage in Frisington, Cumbria. All three of the Bird boys, including their father, enjoyed the outdoors and hiking together. Their father, Joseph, was a keen hunter and fisherman. Traits he passed on to his sons, teaching them all how to shoot at an early age. Joseph kept licensed shotguns, and upon his death in 1998, they were passed down to Derek. Another hobby Derek loved was scuba diving. Not only did he belong to a local aqua club, he also traveled all over the world diving. After leaving school, Derek found work as a joiner at a local undertaker, while David became a mechanic, eventually owning his own garage. Derek later left his job at the Undertakers for a position at a nuclear power plant in the area. He appeared happy, having learned a trade, and now settling into a career with good prospects. It was at this time that things appeared to start heading south for Derek.
1990, he was dismissed from the plant after being convicted of stealing material. Although he received a 12-month suspended prison sentence, it had lasting repercussions on his mental and emotional health. Having a criminal record made it difficult for Derek to find full-time work. He realized at some point that his best bet was to become a taxi driver. It was a job that he could actually get despite having a criminal record. But despite Derek's hard work, he would never become a rich man working as a cabbie. Similar to many of his colleagues, he often found it difficult to make ends meet. His twin brother, on the other hand, had become a mechanic and excavator for a local contractor. He'd also made several land deals, netting him a significant profit. While Derek's finances seemed to dwindle, his brothers grew. At a young age, Derek had become romantically involved with his childhood sweetheart, a woman by the name of Linda Mills. The couple had two sons, Graham, who was born in 1985, and Jamie, born in 1994. However, shortly after the birth of their second son, Derek and Linda separated for reasons unknown. The separation had been reportedly a bit messy and not at the best of terms, yet Derek still remained heavily involved in both of his boys' lives just 11 days before Derek went on his rampage, he became a grandfather. He was so proud of the new arrival, he had visited his grandson only a day before the massacre. Those who knew Derek in the community seemed to either like him or be neutral about him. He was affectionately known as Bertie. He would come in the shop, he would come through and get milk, all he would say was, how do, and see ya. Didn't stand and have a chat, he was so quiet. Let's go back now to where we last left off with Derek in our previous episode. As Derek's rampage was coming to an end, he abandoned his vehicle and headed into a wooded area. Police began surrounding the woods, and helicopters combed the area. Officers weren't sure whether Derek had encountered anyone else on his way into the woods. So they decided to sit and wait for any kind of signal to indicate what Derek might be up to next. Police appealed through loudspeakers for Derek to give himself up, informing him that there was nowhere for him to go they appealed for him to put an end to his murderous massacre, but they were met with no response. At 1.30 p.m., a shot was heard from inside the forest. Armed officers then entered the woods from all directions and in the middle of a clearing, sat against a tree, 
with a shotgun laid across his lap was the lifeless body of Derek Bird. O God, creator of us all, in your Son, Jesus, you have walked the way of darkness and death. You send your spirit of healing and truth to all in need. We pray for those injured or bereaved by inexplicable violence. May your gracious compassion surround and uphold them. In the course of that morning, Derek Bird had killed 12 people. Some he knew, but most were complete strangers. But why? It was the resounding question on absolutely everyone's minds. Family members of Derek's, colleagues, neighbors, friends, the family members of his victims, the communities he had terrorized, and the entire country. Why had this quiet but friendly man, devoted father and recent grandfather, suddenly snap, and within a space of a few hours, had become one of the worst mass killers in British criminal history? This was what was to be described later by the Deputy Chief Constable of Cumbria Police, Stuart Hyde. This has truly been an exceptional and challenging incident for Cumbria uh, to deal with soon after the fatal crash on the A66 in West Cumbria last week. This has shocked the people of Cumbria um, and we are a very tight, close-knit community even within policing and I think we are shocked to the core. The body of Derek Bird was located in a wooded area at, near Boot in West Cumbria at about 1.40 today and at this time we believe that he took his own life. No shots were fired by police officers. Throughout the day we've been dealing with a very fast-moving operation that stretched over three hours and emergency services responded to very difficult challenging circumstances and even now we are currently managing 30 separate crime scenes. We are still at a very early stage in our investigation and we're not able to understand um, or to second-guess the motivation behind it. Neither are we able to establish whether this was a premeditated or a random uh, attack. We can, however, confirm that from our current indications, we estimate that 12 people have lost their lives, plus Mr. Bird. Uh, so 13 people have died this morning. 25 people are currently receiving treatment in West Cumberland, Carlisle and Newcastle hospitals for a range of injuries. We're working hard to support the families of those involved and our focus is now on gaining as much evidence as possible to be able to piece together what the motivation was for these killings. Many tributes to Bird's victims began to appear at the scenes of the shootings. Floral tributes, toys, candles, and cards all appeared at makeshift shrines that the shocked community began to erect. As Cumbria and the country fell into shock and grief, the surviving family of Derek Bird collapsed into turmoil. 
They refrained from commenting on the massacre. Instead, they kept their grief and shock behind closed doors and out of the gaze of media who had begun to camp outside their doorstep. A few days following the rampage, their local pastor, the Reverend Jim Marshall, did his best to explain to the media what the Bird family were experiencing. And he said, there was the Derek they knew for 50 years, and then there was the new Derek for a few hours last Wednesday. They can make no sense at all of what was behind it. They've wanted to make a statement for quite a while, and they have wanted to make that statement in truth and honesty. Four days following the rampage, Derek's sons, Graham and Jamie, offered the following statement. We are utterly devastated about the death of our father, Derek Bird. To us, he was the nicest man you could ever meet. He was a loving dad and recently became a grandfather. We would like to say that we do not know why our dad committed these horrific crimes. We are both mortified by the sad events. Dad was a loving, loving cheerful character and was well known throughout the whole community and the areas in which he worked. He will be missed by us and by his family and by his friends. We would ask that you would be allowed, we would be allowed to mourn the loss of our father. Importantly, we would also like to send our condolences to all the other families and the people involved in this tragic incident. Our thoughts are with them. There is no other intention to release any further statements. And the second statement is from Brian Bird and his family. It reads, My family and I are extremely saddened by the events on Wednesday. The loss of both my brothers is devastating. They were both very caring family people. They were well known and respected in their local communities. My family and I are saddened at the loss of life and woundings and can only offer our condolences to the families concerned. We appreciate what they are suffering at this time. We cannot offer any reason why Derek took it upon himself to commit these crimes. We are in shock and in dismay. We would, be, would ask that we are allowed some privacy to mourn the loss. And we do not intend to make any further statements at this time. It was our uncle and everybody else, their loved one was killed by a stranger. And that makes it so much harder because our dad was killed by his own brother. Everywhere you go, you feel like everybody's looking at you and saying, you know that Derek Bird, that's his family. Not, or you know that's David Bird's family. The inquest into the shooting began a week later and was formally adjourned pending a further investigation. With this adjournment, the coroner was able to release the bodies of Bird's 12 victims for their funerals, and one by one, the people who had lost their lives on that tragic morning were laid to rest in private memorial. Each service was well attended, distinctive and very personal. 
even strangers came out to pay their respects. A reef left at one of the funerals simply said, I did not know you, but I witnessed your tragedy. May God rest your soul. Derek Bird's funeral was held last, out of respect for the families and loved ones of the victims. It was attended by a hundred people, including most of the surviving members of the Bird family. Many of Bird's fellow drivers, his friends and people who knew him also attended. People who knew Derek Bird had refused to condemn him. Understandably, it seems rational how one could assume this was the work of a madman after reading about such carnage at the hands of one man. Yet people in the community refused to believe that. Instead, they struggled to understand his actions, even referring to him as a friend, a nice guy, not aggressive at all. They couldn't understand why he hadn't left a suicide note and no explanation Yet in the months following the massacre, when every aspect of his life and relationships had been looked over before the inquest was reopened, all the evidence seemed to point to a man who had many problems, each of which began to pile up and eventually broke him. At the time of the massacre, Bird was being investigated for tax evasion. He hadn't been declaring his full earnings for years and instead had been spending money beyond his means. Drowning himself in a considerable amount of debt, he owed 60,000 pounds in unpaid taxes and had no way of paying it back. He was convinced that he was going to go to prison and confided with several friends at different times. His work situation hadn't helped with his financial situation either. Whitehaven had recently experienced an influx of cab drivers and so they decided to make a gentleman's agreement that they would utilize a queue system where cabs would line up and after taking a customer would head to the back of the line. However, it was reported there had been several arguments involving cab drivers who had been jumping the queue and taking fares out of turn. Derek had become convinced that other drivers were taking business away from him, which meant money, and he was furious. I spoke to him on Monday, and he, he said, you know, he said there's a few of the people on the rank sort of winding him up and that. And, you know, the guy could have done without it. Bird had always been a social drinker. But since 2007, he began binge drinking. Friends later suggested the root cause of his increased drinking was following an incident earlier in 2007. A couple of years ago, he was involved in an incident at uh, Moreau. Uh, a couple of young lads uh, basically did a runner, you know, ran out of the taxi without paying a fare, and he chased after him. Um, unfortunately, he came out the worst of wear, and he got his he got his head well and truly kicked in. He'd been hit in the face, his teeth knocked out, and when he had gone down, he'd smashed all his skull on the pavement. There was a big gash in the back of his head. He had gone downhill. Uh, He'd started drinking a bit more, and I noticed on Friday gone, Derek, uh, he didn't work on a Friday, and he was bouncing off all the walls in the town. He was drunk, and that wasn't Derek. It was said to have left him quite fearful of working at night, 
and that his drinking increased shortly after. When it came to romantic relationships, Bird's only long-lasting relationship had been with his ex-wife Linda. There had been a few others since, but none that were serious. Bird was reported to have been obsessive over his partners, expressing jealousy and possessiveness over them, but never reported as being violent with any of them. Perhaps one relationship that seems to stand out was the one he had with a woman named Han that he met while vacationing in Thailand in 2007. She was quite a bit younger than Bird, and it's reported that he quickly became obsessed with her, bombarding her with texts and calls, along with frequently sending her money. He appeared infatuated with her, although from reports, it doesn't seem like she felt the same way. Just weeks before the rampage, Bird, despite his own financial troubles, sent Han 1,000 pounds. He received a reply days later, indicating by a single line of text that she didn't wish for him to contact her again and that she was involved in a relationship with another man. Fellow cab drivers reported that this broke Derek's heart. It also emerged during some point in the investigation that Derek had gone to his brother seeking financial assistance during 2009 to no avail. Bird had set his hopes on being left a substantial amount of cash left to him in the will of a dead relative, a sum that he had expected to be in the region of about £25,000, which would help him with his tax evasion. However, this did not materialize either. There is then evidence to suggest that the brothers were entering into some sort of legal dispute, which had been ongoing since 2009. In fact, on the day of the massacre, a letter was found in Bird's home requesting a meeting at the family solicitors with both Derek and David being required to attend. Bird was reported telling several acquaintances that he thought his brother and Kevin Commons were conspiring against him. Yet conversely, David's children and his wife, as well as the rest of the Bird family, claimed that there was no real dispute between them. In fact, they had actually been seen together as a family just three days before the massacre. A week previous, David and his brother Derek were up at the local scramble track with a, an off-road vehicle that David had just finished making. And they spent quite a bit of time that afternoon driving round and round, laughing their heads off, like you would expect warm brothers to do. There wasn't any underlying reason or anything brewing. So here we see a picture of a man who has experienced failed relationships, struggled financially, and may or may not have been having a bit of a family feud with his twin brother. All things that countless people experience on a daily basis, none of which leads them to going on a killing spree, shooting random people on the streets. So what else lay within the mind of Derek Bird? that might explain his behavior. There are many different theories that may provide a glimpse into what finally pushed Derek over the edge. One is from Dr. West, who is a consultant forensic clinical psychologist 
who has assisted in many high-profile murder cases, including that of Derek Bird. What he found was that on the surface, Bird appeared to be an ordinary man, described by everyone as quiet and passive, but in reality was someone who accumulated grievances and never forgot them. Dr. West emphasized that Bird knew what he was doing as he deliberately chose his victims along his driving route and made a conscious decision not to harm certain people. He said, It is my opinion that by the time of his death, Derek Bird appeared to be a bitter, resentful, and depressed man, blaming the rest of society for his failures. He appeared to be suffering from a delusional disorder which disinhibited him significantly to enact vengeful, retaliatory fantasies. Derek Bird had the means and knowledge to kill himself alone relatively easily in a diving accident or with a firearm. He thought that by doing as much damage as he did, he was achieving some kind of notoriety. Dr. West said that Bird's mother, Mary, had told him that when he was growing up, Bird kept his troubles to himself did not argue with anybody, and never lost his temper. She described that apparent self-control as positive, he said. I'm not so sure, as the years go by about how positive that was for him. He said, what is likely is we've got a man who's accumulated a lot of grievances against him, and he did not forget them. He also said, I saw Derek Bird as having made the decision to commit suicide, and he knew when he left home, he would die. He added, it was also curious Bird had uncharacteristically not booked his taxi in for an MOT due on June 7th, and had not submitted his taxi registration documents which were also due to be updated. This probably indicated a degree of premeditation of what was going to happen, he said. Dr. West visited Bird's home as part of his studies and found that his back kitchen, toilet, and bathroom were filthy. His bedrooms were described as absolutely chaotic and he thought it was unlikely he slept in the beds near the time of the shootings. I think he was increasingly preoccupied to the point he was not sleeping, he said. The discovery of a stash of hardcore pornographic DVDs led to the trawl through the internet history on his computer where images of extreme porn were found. Dr. West said this was not common and indicated some deeper resentment against women generally. We also wanted another professional opinion on the actions of Derek Bird. So we reached out to Kate Walinga. She's a psychologist who has worked in the areas of forensics and crisis assessments. My name is Kate Walinga. I am a psychologist, a clinical psychologist and forensic psychologist, and I've also worked in risk and crisis assessment. I have a background actually in engineering and then went on to master's degrees in both criminal justice and mental health counseling and then pursued a doctorate in clinical psychology. I've worked in men's prisons and locked psychiatric hospitals as well as group homes 
and in outpatient clinics. The first thing I asked Kate was that if she thought Derek Bird had a psychotic break. I do not believe that he was psychotic. I don't have any impression, and I didn't do extensive research. I certainly never met him. But I don't have any impression from the reports that he was acting like he was hearing voices or that he suddenly seemed like his behavior had an abrupt change. He seemed secretive or he seemed bizarre or was wearing clothes inappropriate for the season or some of the other things that you might hear for someone who was psychotic. I do think he had a something snapped in his head. I think that he hit his breaking point, uh, but that's not necessarily a sign of a psychiatric problem. That could be just a sign of being human because we all have our tipping points. It's just that most of us have filters and boundaries in place so that even if we hit our very worst moment on our very worst day, we don't resort to violence. Is there a difference between psychotic break and personality disorder? So a psychotic break is, it means something to us in the field. And so I have a hard time talking about it in, in sort of, in the way, in the common way. Because commonly you look at it and you think, of course, something snapped and he went crazy. And he behaved in ways that are totally inappropriate. But a, a psychotic break is when you are suddenly totally distanced from reality. So someone who is psychotic even loses full, you know, if they go into a full-on psychotic episode, they can lose so much reality that they could commit their crime in front of a police officer, and that wouldn't stop them. They would just continue, they wouldn't try to evade the police officer. Um, From what I have read about Derek Bird, I think he had more like a personality disorder, which would be most easily described as your way of filtering reality. And most of us kind of agree that certain behaviors are appropriate and not appropriate, and certain actions from other people are okay and not okay. What we, we mostly agree on what is offensive and what is not, and it's only the gray areas in the middle that we argue about. Whereas somebody with a personality disorder, often they take a totally different perception on everything. So you could look at them sideways because you see them on your peripheral vision and you realize you don't know them and you keep talking. And to you, that won't even register in your consciousness because you didn't interact with them. You didn't do anything to them. And so not even remotely important. Whereas to someone with a personality disorder, if someone's looked at them sideways, maybe now they're being followed. Maybe that person is a spy. Maybe they're watching them all the time. Maybe they hate them. Depending on how they interpret the world, they can interpret small little events very differently from the average person. And I think that's what Derek Bird did. I think that at some point in his life, and maybe it happened several years prior when he was beat up, people beat him up and and stole his money and hurt him. Whether or not he sustained a brain injury, I don't know. But I think something there started to skew his perception of the world. And sometimes it just takes a little tip and you start thinking that people are out to get you, maybe. And it sounds very much like he started to think that. He got sort of paranoid. Um, he started to believe that 
people were stealing his fares, that people were out to get him, that the government was going to sue him on our taxes and take everything he owned, that his brother was colluding, that his lawyer was on board, that there was this vast conspiracy. And once you start to look for what you perceive as evidence of anything, you can find it. You can convince yourself that a fly, literally bug, fly, insect on the wall is some sort of recording device. You can convince yourself of everything if you look hard enough. And it sounds to me like maybe that's the direction he was moving in, that a lot of stuff went bad, went downhill in his life, and some of it was big, bad, legitimate stuff. And then that just built up and built up. So it's that. It's that kind of experience that any of us can have just amplified for for Mr. Bird. Is there an age that these kind of things develop or would it have been an event that created the personality it, disorder? Personality disorders are sort of there from very early uh, because they're basically how you see the world. You know, picture it like, you know, having tinted lenses uh, on your glasses and that you can't take off. And that's, that's sort of everything comes perceived through this lens, through this filter, and you don't choose it. Uh, you don't want to feel paranoid, or you don't want to feel narcissistic, or antisocial, or several other possibilities. Uh, but if addressed by the parents very young, and the family, and with some treatment, and, or just, it doesn't even have to be formal treatment, just supportive adults, the child can grow to temper some of their more extreme reactions and can funnel some of them into functional areas of life. So if you tend to be a little bit paranoid, that basically means you're very attentive all the time to little things. You would make an excellent, perhaps, detective, perhaps scientist, right? So having a personality disorder does not mean you're going to end up violent. At the same time, if you get, as a child, if, if people just start to view you as difficult from early on, then they'll treat you that way and you'll start to believe that that's true. And you can have very unpleasant experiences that are sort of played off each other ways. Uh, personality disorders are often not diagnosed until well into adulthood. In fact, uh, as a psychologist, I'm not allowed to diagnose a child with a formal diagnosis of a personality disorder because there's so much thought that kids' personalities may be flexible. But I'll tell you from my experience that there are absolutely kids, young kids, I look at and go, yeah, a sociopath. You know, and I don't say it. I don't <laughs> write that down anywhere. But you, you develop an antenna for it, and then you just hope that they get the right supports around them. Would there be anything that would indicate that this was developing with him? Sure. Somebody who has an unusually high level of drama around them or somebody who just doesn't care about anybody else. They do whatever they want to do and they don't care um, or they can't connect with other people. There's a difference between people who do bad things because an awful lot of people in prisons have just reached a, a point through circumstances that any of us could have gotten to in similar circumstances. They're just normal people, assuming normal exists anywhere. But People with personality disorders, they often do bad things, and they basically kind of are bad people. They're just jerks. 
So you think that him getting attacked and his money stolen and, and the cabs stealing his fares were what caused him to snap? I, I would not say that they led up to snapping in terms of they were not a sole cause. I don't think most things in life happen for one sole cause. It was something that he perceived as sort of fundamental proof that the world deals with terrible people and it's never going to get there. The kind of mindset you have to have put a gun in your hands like that. People who had seen Derek on the Tuesday, the day before the massacre, reported his mood had darkened as the day had progressed. In the morning, he had visited his son and daughter-in-law to give his grandson a financial gift and had held his grandson in his arms. He had then visited a friend to give him some diving equipment, claiming, you may as well have these, you'll get more use out of it than I will. Nobody noticed anything out of the ordinary. But by the afternoon, Derek was said to have uncharacteristically ignored neighbors who greeted him and had visited the cab rank where he worked in the early evening, seemingly troubled about things. It was claimed that Derek had heated words with some of the cab drivers. These words had apparently ended with Bird saying, There's going to be a rampage tomorrow. Before he left, he stopped to shake hands with some of the drivers, telling them, Goodbye, you'll not see me again. He then got into his car and drove off, staring menacingly at those drivers he had had the words with. Was the massacre decided then and there, or had he finally just had once like too many, and something had snapped inside him. By the time the inquest into the massacre was reopened, nine months after the shooting, many questions and criticisms had been raised. Questions were asked as to whether Bird should have been able to legally hold guns but he was found to have been granted a shotgun license in 1995 and a rifle license in 2007. Following the massacres in Hungerford in 1987 and Dunblane in 1996, British gun laws had been scrutinized and amended to include a ban on semi-automatic weapons and handguns. The question had to be asked, even if he hadn't had access to guns, would he have found another method to murder? The number of certificates for shotguns increased by 5% in the year ending 2009, and gun crime in Cumbria virtually doubled in 2009. So while looking at the facts, 
we also have to look at the individual circumstances of this case. And I think we ought to wait for okay. a definitive statement before deciding if the law is in any way at fault, if the registers have not been complied with. We simply don't know the facts. There is legislation there that has been amended uh, after Dunblane, after Hungerford. As you've said, Jeremy, this is a very rare circumstance. So I wouldn't like to jump to any conclusions until right. we've heard from the Home Office as to precisely what has happened. But I do welcome the fact that we're going to have an inquiry. The terms of those inquiry may well include a look at the processes and procedures that have been adopted. By taking his own life, Derek Bird was never to stand trial for the massacre in which he killed 12 people and attempted to kill another 11. But his suicide also denied the families of his victims their day in court. Although a trial would have been painful and harrowing for them, hearing of their loved ones' final moments, it may have given them the chance to discover the truth and the answers to the questions that must still haunt them. The possible factors that have been outlined here have shown that Bird had accumulation of things that may have led him to kill, but the complete, exact reasons will never be fully known. Derek left behind a deep wound on a community that although has begun to heal over time, will never be completely healed. Leanne Jarman, who was married to one of the victims, Jamie Clark, stated at his funeral, I will never forget that day. It was the worst day of my life. I screamed on the phone when I heard, Jamie and I had a future ahead of us. We were getting married. So I've gone from being completely excited about my future to being terrified of it. Completely terrified of how I'm going to manage without him. It's never going to stop hurting. The people of Cumbria are strong and resilient people who learned how to pull together as a community during a very dark time. Their sense of spirit, dignity, and solidarity since the events of that morning so many years ago continue to live on. Each year, on the anniversary of the massacre, several tributes are held in honor of the victims. to introduce two podcasts that are very close to the Madness family. The Dirty Bits Podcast. Hi, I'm Tawny Plattis, and I host the Dirty Bits Podcast, a show where I very casually retell the sexy, scandalous, and salacious stories your teacher probably left out. We premiere a new episode every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. 
Visit us at tawnyvoice.com slash dirtybits to learn more. See you next Tuesday. And the trail went cold. Hello everyone, this is Robin Warder, host of the true crime podcast, The Trail Went Cold. If you grew up watching the classic television show Unsolved Mysteries, then this is the podcast for you. Each week, I profile a new unsolved murder or missing persons case and share all the baffling details. Afterward, I provide my own personal analysis and theories about what might have happened. This is a show for true crime buffs who are fascinated by cold cases and love to discuss them and pick them apart in an attempt to figure out the truth. So be sure to check out our podcast to learn about some truly bizarre unsolved mysteries where the trail went cold. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and all other major podcast apps. You can find us on Facebook by searching The Minds of Madness and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track Feel the Madness is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerarecords.com.au slash G-E